that's how you practice though the resilience like there's some there's some aspect of that that going through something hard and coming out on the other side and like taking stock like okay how did I do there um if I went through that again what would I do differently and um it's like using a muscle like you you use it and it grows and it gets stronger it's I think the same thing with that personal resilience piece that you only get better at that by going through it and like leaning into it getting better you can get better at being resilient and I'm, I'm not sure people fully grasp that um until you're on the other side of something really challenging what's up everybody welcome to the pursuit a journey in the life of sports i'm your host chris mongelia director of men's basketball operations at princeton university this podcast is all about exploring the intellectual approach to maximizing your ability we talk with accomplished professionals in the sports industry and learn what has allowed them to be able to succeed on their journey in the life of sports The goal here is for listeners to collect as many high performance habits and behaviors as possible, and then be able to adopt and apply them into their own lives and careers. On this episode, Lisa Van Akron, the head softball coach at Princeton University, discusses with me how personal resilience and emotional intelligence are both important skills to refine as you navigate through life. She shares her perspective on how facing moments of adversity is not only an opportunity to learn, but also to build resilience in those situations. Throughout the conversation, she acknowledges her extreme competitiveness, but also displays her relentless quest for growth and understanding as a person, coach, and leader. It is clear from start to finish of this conversation that Lisa is deeply interested in equality, integrity, and pursuing competitive excellence with anyone who is in her circles. This is a conversation that you do not want to miss, and I am so excited to be able to share this with you all. Our guest today is Lisa Van Akron, head softball coach at Princeton University, where she is entering her ninth year with the Tigers. Before joining the coaching ranks, Lisa had a truly decorated career at Lehigh University. She's the only student athlete to be named Patriot League Pitcher of the Year four times and was also named Patriot League Player of the Year in 2008. She owns Lehigh and Patriot League career records for games pitched, complete games, victories, innings pitched, shutouts, and strikeouts. During her four years at Lehigh, her team's record against Patriot League opponents was a dominant 67-11, and and I also had to mention that she had 23 career home runs. Lisa's playing career at Lehigh could be its own full episode, to be honest. Professionally, through eight seasons as the head coach at Princeton, Lisa is already the third winningest coach in program history. Lisa's teams have won two Ivy League titles. She was named Ivy League Coach of the Year twice, and in 2016, Princeton became the first team in league history to win the Ivy League Championship Series as the visiting team. And I'm sure, most importantly to Lisa, 29 of her players have also been earned, have also earned all Ivy League honors during her tenure. Obviously, Lisa and I both work in the same athletic department here at Princeton, and that is how our friendship began. Over time, we have had endless conversations, challenging each other's viewpoints, sharing best practices, and brainstorming ideas for both our personal and our team's development. 
we decided today to, to give everyone listening an inside look to some of those conversations. So Lisa, welcome. And thanks for taking the time for this conversation. I don't know if they're ready for it, Monge, but I'm, I'm, I'm in. It, it should be fun. <laughs> My first question is how uncomfortable were you listening to me compliment you all there in that intro? Yeah, my blood pressure's up a little bit, I'll be honest. Um, but the good thing about coaching is it's really not about you. So uh, if you can get through that, those first few minutes of an intro like that, <laughs> we can just move on with life. Sometimes it's good to shine a little light. So just to get started, I was kind of curious, we've never even spoken about this, like when and how did your love for softball begin? Oh, uh, taking it back. Um, probably, uh, my sister played softball and, um, my mom did as well. Um, and so I think watching my sister, she's quite a bit older than I am. So, um, she was, you know, playing in high school when I was like eight and running around, you know, behind the dugout playing in a, a dirt hill. And, you know, um, it was great. Like she just, I don't know. She was a great pitcher and um, played on a really successful team. And I think, you know, if you have siblings, you know, this, the rivalry part of that just sets in so early. So I wanted to, I would like to say I wanted to be like her, but I think I wanted to just be better than her. <laughs> um, and yeah, the, the pitching part was great because you're always involved. So I just wanted the ball in my hand and have some influence over the game and, um, yeah, that's what, that's really where it started was my sister. So your sister was like the competitive drive for you. Like that's, it's so true. You always want to be better than your sibling. So when, when do you think it turned from the love of playing softball to the love of learning the game? That's a great question. Um, I think I used to love whatever sport was in season because everything was a little bit different. So whatever season it was, if it was soccer season, soccer was my favorite sport. If it was basketball season, basketball was my favorite sport. Um, and then softball was spring and sometimes summer, but, um, so I like the, the different types of skills and the different things. I've always liked that part, just being focused on one, one thing at a time, but, um, the love of skill development, probably post-surgery in my college career, I had like a, a fairly minor surgery to my forearm. And coming back, you have to like be pretty regimented about what you're doing and you're on a pitch count. And I'm um, just trying to build back that strength. And you have to learn, you have to almost reteach yourself how to do the things that were just so natural. And I think in that process, I tried to rework some of my mechanics. And although it was painstaking at times, it was really interesting to watch my ability to grow into that. Um, and so learning a new change up, um, you know, refining like a curveball, like all of that stuff, I think probably started late in my college career. So to that point, you were just like, play, play, play. And when you were younger, it was just like you loved playing and competing and probably winning. And then that surgery gave you the opportunity or that, you know, behind the lens look at like, oh, okay, this is how the coaching side or learning how to refine a skill. You think that's when that happened for you? I think so. I, you know, like 
it's funny. I talk about this sometimes at like camps with, um, you know, younger athletes, but uh, a really simple way that I used to practice was to try to throw the best version of that pitch that I have ever thrown before. Like the next curveball that I threw was going to be the best curveball I've ever thrown. Um, and that was very much my mindset and what kind of drove me. Now there's a lot going into what makes that curveball move. And, um, you know, if your body's working together and if you're, you know, it's located in the right spot and all that, but, um, that was like the overarching mindset. And I think the surgery gave me the chance to think about the tactics of like, what gets you to that point where you can just let the competitive part take over. And I'm not sure I was ever in tune to that. Um, okay. So much like our normal conversations, I'm learning this as I'm speaking to you out loud, which is like why I love these conversations so much, because sometimes I start and I'm like, I had no idea it was going to go in this direction. Hey, that's the point. It's, it's true. And you know, here we are down a rabbit hole again. (laughs) Where Um, do you, like, you just said something that triggered me. Like, where do you think that quote unquote best curveball mindset, like where does that come from? Like where you, you didn't just like, you weren't born with that. Do you think your sister being significantly older than you and like always trying to be better than her? Is that where that came from or? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's definitely embedded into my family's kind of culture. Like we're all pretty competitive group of people. Um, but I don't know what replays in my head and not, this isn't just with pitching. I think this is with a lot of things. I just want to be the best. Like I want to be, I don't want to just participate. Like I want to be the best at it. And I've learned uh, over time that sometimes that can be a really negative mindset um, depending on how you're channeling those words. I want to be the best. It can be incredibly motivating, but Um, I think there are times where it really can hold you back and prevent you from just being where you're at right now and recognize that some of that development, whatever you're at, if you're not there yet, um, that's like all part of the journey. Um, That sounds kind of corny, but I think it's the truth. But yeah, I'm not sure where it came from. Um, It just, it feels very embedded into my, like, my DNA and my mindset and probably combo of nature and nurture. But, um, yeah, my family was a big part of that. I think when you, when you think back, like you, you already mentioned your sister was someone that kind of got you started and fell in love with softball. Do you know if, is she like the only ignition point for you? Like someone that you saw achieving at like a high level. And that was like your vision of like, well, she can do it. I can do it. Or was there anyone else growing up or even, you know, in college that you looked at to say, that's something that I would like to do one day? Um, you know, there's this thing that comes up, I think, when we talk about media and representation, and this is across gender and, and races and um, just identities, different identities. But if you can't see it, you can't be it. You know, like you have to be able to see what's possible um, and have access to that. I think the difference for me was I had someone in my family as the example that I could, I could see in person. And for some people that might mean needing access to media to see what is possible and, and 
people that are achieving who look like them or who resonates with them. And my mom and my sister were absolutely that for me. There was no, you know, uh, women can't be competitive or women can't be, um, you know, super high achieving or talented or, um, whatever it was, but that was so part of how I was raised that I don't think I had an awakening moment or another example that made me realize that necessarily for the first time. Um, cause that was my, that was my house. You know, my mom is one of the strongest willed person, people that I, that I know. Um, and my sister, I would say the same, like they just are the physical representations of, you know, that sparks, I think, or inspires you, uh, as a kid. Can you talk a little bit further about how important those ignition points are for people, specifically youth and maybe even more so specifically like young girls? Because that's really like if you I was thinking the other day when I was planning this whole podcast, like when did Lisa and I become so tight? And I think that is where it all started having those conversations similar to this topic right here. So talk more about how important those ignition points are for youth and specifically young girls. Yeah, it's funny because I'm sure it's a conversation you never expected to have or enjoy having and was like, oh, I don't need to learn anything more about this or, you know, want to engage in this. So I'm glad you think that that's the source of of the connection. Um, Yeah, it's like, it's a huge deal. You know, like we work at Princeton and we've got, um, we've got 37 sports here. And, you know, with, with title nine, we've got basically half, you know, our, our women, and there's a lot of differences in how, um, how our society treats different sports and in particular women's sports, you know, uh, we use last night as an example. Um, so, you know, basically the day after WNBA and NBA, games, they, you know, the players decided to basically boycott, um, because of Jacob Blake's, uh, you know, being targeted by the police and, um, they decided to take this stand and there was a lot of notoriety given to the NBA basketball players for taking this stand. Um, the WNBA has been doing this activism consistently for years for years outside of cap when he knelt, I guess is the four year anniversary yesterday mm-hmm. after he knelt the WNBA, they were doing that. They've been doing this activism the whole time. And, um, you know, I think that that deserves recognition now, um, when it becomes the NBA, it, it's different and people, you know, decide to give credit. I think sometimes when it's not due, Um, but the reality is I think women's sports were used to being marginalized and it's, it's important to demarginalize marginalized groups. And I think that's where you and I started to talk. Like you have a niece, right? I have a daughter. I have four nieces and my family and our job, I think as the older generation is to make sure they don't experience those boundaries. And we need to move the needle. You know, you want them to have access to opportunities. And the reality in our country is not everyone has the same access to opportunities. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so funny because while I was thinking back to this, 
I rem- I don't remember ever asking for your opinion on this stuff. Like you, <laughs> you, you just like, I, I, I might've stopped in your office trying to, you know, meet people in network and like be an ambassador for the athletic department and just get to know everyone. And somehow our conversation stumbled down that road. And I might've said, I think I said like girl and you were like woman. And I was like, Oh, okay. And from there, it's crazy because that's what like drew me into our relationship was like, here's someone who is not afraid to speak what she's saying and correct people and stand up for what's right. And I felt like I was growing from that original conversation and we had had numerous ones and it took me a while to eliminate girl or girls from my vocabulary. And now when I hear people say girl, when they're speaking about young women or grown women, I cringe and I'm like, Oh, Lisa, she got me. (laughs) But like that, that's been like one of the best parts about working at Princeton has been finding relationships like people like you, who just challenge our way of thinking and continue to grow from there. And that, like you said, I have a niece, right? And now I always think about how important it is for her to see females at any course of life achieving at a high level and being successful. Because I had a conversation with my brother-in-law and my sister just last weekend saying like, they don't care what she does as long as she's exposed to as many things as she possibly can be exposed to and then just let her pick. And then we'll just guide her to be like, Hey, you got to try and be the best that you can possibly be and do what's fun. And that I don't, I did not have that knowledge really until our conversations happened. So that it might be the stem of why this podcast is happening right now, because it's unprecedented that men's basketball and softball are collaborating. Like it doesn't happen. It's not normal, you know, and that's been one of the coolest things about working here. And now I'm just rambling. And that's usually what happens in these conversations. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We could go on and on, but the good part is like, you know, we, we let each other ramble. We let each other have our, our say. And usually at some point there's that awakening, but it's a, it's a good, that aspect of being able to sit down for you to come and be able to sit down and just listen and to like ask follow-up questions and to be like, I don't understand this. I, I remember us having like distinct conversations where I'd be like, I don't get this. Like, I can't, you know, I've had a week to think about it. I see, I can't wrap my brain around this. Can we talk about this? And the ability to do that and process almost out loud with someone, um, especially somebody that you trust is essential for growth. Right. And that's not, there's like a vulnerability piece there that I think, um, can be missing, you know, in certain organizations. And the great part like about working at Princeton is, growth mindset is really something people buy into here, but that takes vulnerability, like to sit down and be like, I'm not sure I don't get this. And here's part of this that I don't understand. What, what does this sound like to you? Um, that stuff is so important. That's what I love. I love being able to do that. Uh, it's, it's hard. Like at practice, sometimes even in the bullpen, our, you know, our pitchers will get on a tangent and it's like, you know, the catcher is over there, like coach, we got like, can you, can we throw a pitch again? I'm like, I'm sorry. Sorry guys. Like I'm back. All right, here we go. But the processing of that stuff is important. And I feel like that is, that has been the key to growth is no, no one has to be perfect. And for so long, 
I used to talk about like chasing perfection, right? And chasing perspective and chasing your passion. And I still believe in perspective and passion, but I've gotten away from perfection because that is like a crippling chase. It's impossible to be perfect, right? Every once in a while in softball and in baseball, you can throw what's called a perfect game, but like really you probably threw a ball in there. So it's not totally perfect. Um, But for me, like not being afraid of perfection and the vulnerability is where that's where the true growth starts to happen. And that's, that's where our relationship as friends and coworkers grew because I walked in there and I was like, okay, Lisa called me out on my nonsense and my ignorance. And I was like, and there's a room, there's a space to grow and I trust her. And like, that's where we've just continued to, to blossom in that space. And I, I think more people need to, need to hear that is like, it is okay not to be perfect. And the only way to grow is to admit that you have room to grow. Like that is what more people need to start doing. And I think if you're talking about professionalism, if you're talking about athletically, if you're talking about, um, you know, socially and morally, like admitting I am not perfect, I'm here to grow and I'm here to learn, then we would just start benefiting a whole lot more from that mindset. And, you know, it's funny, I heard this term used on um, a webinar, I think recently, like instead of calling people out, call them in. And I think there's like a level of accountability that we can have with each other where you hold someone accountable to something that they said that didn't sit well, or like, Hey, you're, I went, I got to challenge you in this area. I don't think this, this matches up with who I know you are as a person and without it ruining our friendship. Like I would say most of the time after even like really tough or really deep conversations where it's like, we're back and forth and it may look to someone else like arguing, but we both walk away. And I actually feel like it strengthens our friendship when we get to that point. And I think there's few, there's few relationships that people have, I think in general that look like that, where it's genuinely challenging, but there's like that, always that underlying level of respect that, um, this person trusts me. And like, I want you to become the best version of yourself. So I'm going to go there with you and you got to stay in it. Like, even when it doesn't feel good, like you have to stay in it. And then I'm going to text you tomorrow and be like, all right, can we, when's the next one? When can we talk again? Right. I am almost uncontrollably laughing because as you're saying that, I don't even know if you're thinking about what I'm thinking, but when you and I went, with Brendan and we were in Philly for the women's (laughs) basketball game when they played Penn and we went to the bar to get dinner afterwards and we sat at a high top table and anyone who was in that bar and listening like is we were doing exactly what you just said. Yeah. We were, we were literally like arguing back and forth at our points, totally respectful. And I remember the next day you texted me and you're like, Hey, like, I just want to apologize if I was over the top. I was like, no, 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 no. That's what we do. Like we, I see one thing, you see another thing. We argue back and forth about it and we probably find common ground in some space that one of us is probably right. And one of us is also probably right. And just figuring out that navigation, but the trust is a really big part of it. That like you hit the nail on the head there. Like that 
to be able to have someone that you can trust. And Brendan has been included in those conversations as well. Brendan's Lisa's husband for anybody who's listening at home that doesn't know. Um, but man, that that's making me laugh so much because yeah. that's exactly what it was. Yeah, that's it. You, that's absolutely it. And like, you know, it's, it's funny cause I can be, I think it takes a, a pretty strong personality to tolerate me sometimes. <laughs> I'm that person typically at a party or like our, you know, our holiday party where I'm either on the dance floor or in some like life-changing conversation that lasts for like two hours after the party's over. And it's like, uh, all right, that's a lot. Right. Um, but I, I it's like, you, you gotta find people that can are willing to go there with you and to- tolerate is probably the best way to describe it. <laughs> Oh man. Along those lines a little bit, like the conversations that we have, there's something that's been in my mind right now. And this is what we would kind of normally do is I would walk down to the mezzanine level, knock on your door and interrupt probably something really important that you're doing. And then just sit in that chair and be like, so this is something that I heard, or this is something that I've been thinking about is the importance of emotional intelligence and personal resilience. Um, and how that is like the most important thing that we can teach the, the youth on our team, the youth in high school, you know, middle school is just teaching those two key things in life. Like it's not a, it's not history 101. It's not, you know, Spanish, it's not English class. Like how do you think emotional intelligence being like, you know, being able to control your emotions and also knowing how to navigate situations when they present themselves, like how important do you think that is in life in coaching um, anywhere in that space? Oh gosh, I think it's crucial. And um, you know, I, I think for the, the men and women that we get to teach and interact with every day, I think it's even different. Not that you and I are super old, but I do think we grew up with a different um a different set of circumstances around us that, you know, whether that be social media or, um, just like, I think Facebook came out my freshman year of college, maybe, or something like that. Um, now you're really yourself now you're really, (laughs) no, that's okay. Um, but I think the growing up with that, I think there's, um, there's potential barriers to developing, or practicing resilience and emotional intelligence. And I read emotional intelligence or I heard emotional intelligence to mean being able to identify my own emotions and being able to identify others' emotions accurately. So are you standoffish because you are failing at the skill or are you standoffish because there's something else going on in life and you're, and you know, there's another layer to it, you know, and, and when to ask those like follow-up questions with people, that's the connection building part, right? Like that's where I think genuine relationships are formed. And, um, you know, when, when it comes down to it, if, if COVID life has taught us nothing else, our relationships matter more than we ever recognize that they do. And, um, I think that emotional intelligence part is so very important. Now our challenge is to figure out how to apply emotional intelligence over a screen. 
Mm -hmm. right? Like we don't have the same level of human interaction. So when we're reading someone, I, I hate this about not being around my, uh, you know, my kids at practice. It's like, I read everything. I'm reading their body language. I'm reading how they're interacting with their teammates, how they show up to practice. Like, um, I'm reading their facial expressions as I'm explaining a drill. And if something doesn't add up or something isn't, you know, fully themselves, like after practice, you know, I would, I would say something and I would say, Hey, are you doing okay? You know, you looked a little out of it when you got here, are you sleeping all right? And, um, you know, are you stressed with school or what's going on? And we don't have the opportunity to do that. So I think it requires like back to our original point, this is always what happens too, right? We always circle back to something and connect every, yeah. But I think there's a level of vulnerability that is so essential right now for everyone to show up with because otherwise it's going to, I think, further our isolation. If like, if you don't, if you're not willing to show up to a team meeting and be prepared to be vulnerable and tell people where you're really at, I fear that the isolation that already exists with the current circumstances will, will drive us further. Mm -hmm. If that makes any sense. No, it does. Totally. And then like personal resilience. I mean, how can you not know what that is at this point and how that applies to everything? Like the ability to adapt, withstand and recover from, from stress and adversity. So like everyone is dealing with some sort of personal resilience. Like there's, there's no point that that doesn't touch right now. So how has that been evident or prominent in your career growth and your personal growth? Yeah. Um, the, it, it's going through challenging circumstances, whatever, you know, that definition is for you. And I think everyone has their own versions of what's challenging for them. So something that may not be challenging for you may have been really challenging for me because we're different people. We grew up in different circumstances. And I, I think that part is, that's how you practice though, the resilience. Like there's some, there's some aspect of that, that going through something hard and coming out on the other side and like taking stock, like, okay, how did I do there? Um, if I went through that again, what would I do differently? And, um, it's like using a muscle, like you, you use it and it grows and it gets stronger. It's, I think the same thing with that personal resilience piece that, you only get better at that by going through it and like leaning into it. Um, and we're all doing that right now, <laughs> I think to some degree. And, you know, the, um, you just hope that on the other side, we can use this as a point in life where we developed something, some skill or some level of resilience that we didn't have going in. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes us stronger. It makes us better, you know, like, that's, I think getting better, you can get better at being resilient. And I'm, I'm not sure people fully grasp that, um, until you're on the other side of something really challenging. Along those lines, do you think the words fearlessness and confidence intersect? Yes. Um, there's really strong evidence, like psychological evidence that there's a relationship between risk-taking and confidence building. 
And I think when you're taking risks, there's a level of fear, like automatically attached. But um, we were just talking about this, like our staff in the past, probably year and a half or two years, like confidence is really hard to come by in softball because there's just so much failure, you know, like statistically and, um, you know, all the things that you hear, oh, you hit, you know, three out of 10 and you're going to be in the hall of fame. Um, But with that, it's really a, confidence can be a delicate balance in a game of failure and in life sometimes, but there's actually a lot of, uh, there's a correlation between risk-taking and confidence building. And it feels counterintuitive, but once you do that in practice, that you kind of understand what that looks like. Um, and I, I, I don't have a great maybe example, but I think, I don't know, even like sitting down to have some of those tough conversations that you and I have had, like there's confidence building for you to be able to take whatever it was that made you uncomfortable and use it in another conversation that maybe you didn't feel comfortable or confident to do prior. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. It's an interesting concept. Yeah. It's, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is like fearlessness and confidence and how do they intersect and how are they related to developing personal resilience? Like you can't just go, you can't become personally resilient if you don't have the fearlessness to continue when things, you know, when you have to adapt and deal with adversity and how can you be fearless if you're not totally confident in moving forward and taking that step? So it's just, I would say, I would say fearlessness is more related to your pursuit of perfection where it's like, that might not be it. Mm-hmm. It might be, um, I just listened to a, a podcast, a Brene Brown podcast recently that talked about this, like it, courage isn't absence of fear. It's, um, it's the willingness to go on in spite of fear because mm-hmm. fear exists. So like fearlessness may be a myth. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure anyone can say, Oh, I, I'm not, I'm not fearful. Um, I think everyone right now to some degree feels a level of fear, whether in their personal life or on a societal level. And maybe that fearlessness, maybe it's courage instead. Mm-hmm. You know, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. You, when talking about, um, personal resilience and confidence and fearlessness, you, you mentioned the word failure, um, which I, which you didn't do it in, on purpose, but great transition. Cause I had asked you prior to this to come up with your own definition of what failure is and your own definition of what adversity is. And this came about from episode one, anybody who's listening to, to all these that were the conversations that we're putting out. Um, I asked Tim Sweeney about failure and adversity and the, light bulb thing for me was that he had a different interpretation of what adversity was than what I did, you know, and it just made me think in coaching, you know, basketball, we have 15 to 17 guys in our program, same, similar for softball around those numbers, maybe a little more. Um, And how different are all those backgrounds and how different are all of those experiences and how different are all of their definitions for specific words. And it was just a, it's something that I've started to work on and I'm kind of making quote unquote, like a pursuit podcast glossary. And I'm just trying to define words that I'm using on the podcast. And I'm wondering 
how that could be incorporated into coaching? And do you need to have a glossary for the words that you use to your players? Because, you know, player A from California that grew up in Malibu is going to have a different perception from player B who might have grew up in, you know, the city urban life of Chicago. Like there's just different perspectives there. So what is your definition of failure? If you had to like the Lisa Van Akron dictionary of words, how would you present failure? Oh gosh, I haven't published that book yet. Uh, (laughs) But um, my definition of failure would be refusing refusing to change when presented with new information. Um, Like we're constantly getting new information and um, this is no longer part of the definition. This is the explanation. Okay. I got it. Got it. Got it. it. Just want to make sure. Um, But I think we're constantly getting new information. And if you're not adapting to that or reflecting and, and being willing to change then what's the point? You know what I mean? Like, what's mm-hmm. the point mm-hmm. if there's not progress or like the recognition that things aren't stagnant? I, I think that it would be my definition of failure. So I wrote, I have, when action is taken, the inability to achieve the desired result based on one's expectation. And I feel like failure is inevitable. Like everyone's so afraid of that word failure, but like it's such a part of human life and not even human life. Like it's just a part of anyone's life, male, female, animal, like someone's going to take an action and you're unable to achieve that desired result that you had in your head of how things were going to go. And and that's it. Like you, you failed in that moment. Now, whether you perceive that as negative or a positive, that's you have to shape your brain around that. But that was my definition of failure. Is that I like I liked what you said about it aligning with the individual's expectations. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that part I think is really key because I mean, you think about it, like what your parents would expect of you might be different than what you would expect from you. Totally. And it might be different than what your players expect from you. Right. Totally. So all of those like that personalized kind of definition, um, if it doesn't meet the individual's expectations, that's when it really feels like a failure. And as a coach, like you're going to have expectations for a player and that player is going to have possibly a different expectation than you do. And if yours is higher than that player's, you may see them as failing and they may see themselves as meeting the bar that they have set for themselves. So getting on the same page in terms of what the expectation is for me is where you can figure out what failure is and what it means to, you know, the player, the coach and and growth is kind of looping in what you said, like, how do you grow from those failures? Mm -hmm. Uh, The second one I had was adversity. um, And how would you define adversity? Um. I would define adversity. And maybe how is it different than failure also? I would add that. How is it different than failure? I see them as very different. Um, But adversity, I would say, is a a challenge that makes life harder temporarily. Um, But it reveals something that you need to learn. Huge. 
the fact that you said temporary for me is like, I have that in my definition and I think is easily the most important part of that words, you know, defining moment is like temporary adversity. Like adversity is not permanent. Failure is potentially permanent, right? You can, cause you're taking an action and there's the inability to achieve that desired result. And there's going to be a result from it. Adversity for me, I wrote a temporary state of misfortune or difficulty thrust upon someone outside of their control. Like someone put something in the way of what you're going for. And hopefully it's just a temporary thing, you know, whether you can move it great. Maybe sometimes you just got to navigate around it, but it's only temporary. It becomes permanent. If you just let it paralyze you. Oh gosh, there's so much there. Um, I actually think that for me and some of the people that I work with, adversity is not always an outside force or something that someone else or circumstances puts in your path. I would say we have internal adversity too. When you're dealing with a mental health crisis, that is internal adversity. That may not have been created by someone else, but it doesn't also doesn't devalue that that is a big time challenge or a big time level of adversity. Um, or even just like when perfection is the only option and it's unachievable, what that can do to your psyche. I think that's a form of adversity too. Like mm -hmm. just the internal conversations around that, um, they can be debilitating for people. And I think that's something we, especially working with high performers, the way that we do, we're surrounded by that. Um, I think a lot of adversity that I've seen can be internal and not necessarily something from the outside that gets put onto someone. That's interesting. I didn't think of it like that. If you, now, if you have like circling it all together, if you have a strong level of emotional intelligence and personal resilience, do you think there's an advantage to adversity? My second part of the definition was an opportunity to build resilience. Mm -hmm. So yes. Um, I think it's, it's necessary, you know, in some ways, like you're going to face it. It's not if it's when and what, and, um, you know, when it, when adversity comes and when it comes again, um, there's no like permanent achievement over adversity. There's no like final, Oh, I got through my adversity and now I'm going to start living life. There's, there's constant, you know, you just don't know what's coming next in a lot of ways. And, um, I think the, that's where the opportunity to learn comes in. Like that it's when you're faced with it, with adversity, whatever it's form, there's something you may need to learn from it. And it's a chance to build resilience. And any sports podcast or business podcast or book that you read, like everyone's always searching for like the magic potion of what's going to make them get to where they want to be. And it just shows me that there's so there's such a melting pot of ways and things that you need to have in order to do that. And like emotional intelligence, sure. Personal resilience, sure. But like, how do you achieve those? And for me, like positive energy and confidence in like who you are and what you're doing. And, and if you're aligned with your passion, like that has to be, you know, if I'm making that melting pot or I'm, you know, making some ingredients, like those have to be a huge part of it for sure. Yeah, I agree. I think the, 
the, the passion part is like essential, you know what I mean? Otherwise there's a, there's an internal battle. Sometimes you don't even realize that it might be happening, but if you are not following something that you're passionate about or doing something that you're passionate about, um, I think you're always going to have an internal voice that's maybe pulling you in a different direction. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And, um, but yeah, like uh, there's no, there's no one cure. There's no one perfect way to do this. Like, I think that's why we all talk about it so much is because we're trying to find it and people are desperate to want to live a life of purpose. But the reality is that looks different for each of us and what works for you may not work for me, but if we're in it together, we get to help each other through that and share some things that at least maybe it makes your load a little bit lighter. The, the individual or internal adversity piece that you just, you know, just happened to drop into my mind is going to eat at me for like a, like a whole week. I'm just thinking about it right now. And I'm like, I can't focus on these questions that I should be following up with because I'm just like, that just blew my mind. Like I didn't even think of internal adversity being a possible thing. I'm always thinking of external factors that maybe hinder your ability to go through things. Like maybe I don't have enough money to chase this dream. Maybe I don't have enough support that's outside of my control, but the internal struggle for me, um, I didn't think of that. So that's interesting. Thank you for planting that seed in my head. Uh, always. <laughs> uh, just to to pivot a little bit, uh, this is, you know, maybe one of my favorite parts of doing this is just to try and get some resources for people um, and selfishly myself as well. Um, I've already purchased a couple of the books that our previous guests have uh, recommended on here. So this is the portion that we're calling quick hitters. Just a couple of quick questions for you to give some resources to the people listening. And of course, again, myself. Uh, so three books that you're most likely to recommend to someone else to read. Uh, so, um, becoming by Michelle Obama, um, timely necessary, um, not all political, incredibly inspiring. Um, I think we need to commit and this is maybe my challenge for you too. I, I looked, I looked at my bookshelf at work and at home and I found so many books written by white men on leadership and how to become a better coach. And I am actively seeking books that are written by women, women of color, um, non-binary uh, individuals, mm-hmm. people who can share something about leadership and culture development, all the things that I'm interested in from a different lens. So I would say this is a really, this is a really good one. I have a ton of respect for Michelle Obama, regardless of where your political leanings are. Um, this woman is an incredibly accomplished individual. Um, so awesome book, Becoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, next one, Dare to Lead, Brene Brown. Oh yeah. If you don't listen to Brene Brown's podcast, Unlocking Us, you are missing out on some major, major opportunity for self-reflection, light bulb moments, like do it. So that book is a lot on just like vulnerability and leadership and um, really very interesting. 
Um, and then the third one would be Mentor Leader by Tony Dungy. Have you read that one? I have. Okay. Yeah. One of my favorites, definitely, I think for me aligns um, my job with like my spirituality and what, uh, what the real purpose is. Cause the, the purpose is not, we love winning, right? Like that's why we're friends. We love competing and we love winning, but like, is that really what it's all about? Um, and you know, at some point that, that, that becomes unfulfilling and it's, mm-hmm. there's gotta be more to it. I think Tony does a good job of, uh, explaining all that. That's a great book. You can't ask a Colts fan if he's read a Tony Dungy book. Come on. Oh, my bad. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. Come on. I've read all of them. Uh, good, good answers though. I haven't read becoming, so I'm, I might have to check that one out. Um, most interesting follow on Twitter or Instagram doesn't have to be coach related. Doesn't have to be softball related. Most interesting person that you follow on Twitter or Instagram. There's, I can, there's two. Um, I'm just going to say two. I can break the rules. I'm that stubborn. I know. Um, Billie Jean King is an awesome follow on Twitter. She just, I, you know, she's just a game changer in so many areas of life. And she's a good example of how to, of intersectionality and how like striving for, you know, gender equality also intersects with racial equality. And, um, it's, uh, she's a really interesting follow. So Billy Jean King. I'm so fascinated by that because I don't, I didn't know who you were going to say, but I, I can guarantee that I did not think you were going to say Billy Jean King. Like I had no idea she was even on Twitter. So she is, and she's great. Um, and she's also like the head of the women's sports foundation. They've done some really cool stuff during, uh, COVID times. Um, so it's been awesome. Uh, and then Adam Grant, who's a professor at Penn, um, does some really interesting work and just has, he has these, like, I think it's Tuesday thoughts or something like that. And he always comes up with something that I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> I love things that make me do that. So he's also a good follow. Yeah. No, that's a cool one. Most meaningful speech that you've ever heard and why? Yeah, this is going to be a lame one because um, I don't, speeches are kind of like, I love unscripted. I love things that are like authentic and in the moment. And so I'm not super drawn to speeches per se, but um, Sunday sermons by Andy Stanley. Um, He's a, a preacher from Atlanta. And, uh, that's been my church in COVID time. So every Sunday sermon by him, I feel like really has been helpful from a growth standpoint for me. And then I just want to say Ariel Atkins, her, her interview last night with Holly Rowe, when they decided not to play, um, you got to look it up. Cause it, I mean, I, I think based on what, uh, what they were saying about her just as a person. She's not, she's a woman of few words generally and just absolutely, I don't know, I think really nailed it. Um, and it's a perspective that we need to hear. So um, yeah, check that out. Are Sunday sermons, is that like, are those archived? Like, can you just pull them up on like YouTube or something like that? Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's the North point church. I'm not a member of the, of that church necessarily. I just really like Andy Stanley as a, um, 
as a preacher. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, they're all archived. It's like basically been online church for the last three months. So there's a, there's a ton there. I think he's a podcast too. Um, But yeah, it's, it's good stuff. His podcast reads like a sermon too, um, or sounds like a sermon. Now that sounds familiar. Now I feel like you sent me his podcast. Yeah. I feel like I've listened to a couple and I did like him. He was good. Okay. That makes sense now. I was like, Andy Stanley, why do I know that? Oh, those are good ones. I like that. Thanks for those. I hope. Quick hitters. No, for sure. Um, All right. Transitioning back in, I kind of want to do something a little outside the box here. Um, I hope we'll see how this goes. Let's just try it. Uh, I'd like to read a quote that your head coach at Lehigh said about you in your press release from your induction into the Lehigh University Hall of Fame. And I'd like to kind of just break down some different components and ask you questions about his words. So I thought it was a great quote. That's why I'm bringing it up. So here's the full quote. Lisa was very talented, but honestly, we've had more talented players than her in our program. What she had was not only talent, but an incredible drive. She was driven to be the best that she could be on the softball field and in the classroom as well. She was just a born leader. She took people that knew they wanted to do something and through her force and personality, she was able to get people to do uncomfortable things that made them better as softball players and as people. Your reaction. <laughs> oh, coach. <laughs> coach. Um, I don't, uh, it's hard for me to have, like to, I don't know, process that because when you're living it, you know, you don't, you don't really know what's happening in the moment. And I think when you're an athlete, you're just, there's just so much going on, but I loved my teammates. I loved them and, um, still love them. Like they just are a big, they're a big part of my development as a person. And so, uh, to feel like I helped pull us in a direction that hopefully, hopefully was positive for everybody, I guess makes me feel good. Um, I just hope to be that as a coach at some point too, you know, I still have so much to learn how to be a good coach, but to be able to, I don't know, align people's vision and goals to accomplish something, you know, pretty great. Like that's, I don't know. That's kind of what we're after. Mm-hmm. All right. So now we're going to narrow it down. Lisa was very talented, but honestly, we've had more talented players than her in our program. Initial reaction to that sentence. There was not a better rise ball coach. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Initial reaction. Come on. What is it? Um, yeah, I agree. I don't think there was anyone more competitive than me. I would put that up, like up there with anyone, but um, more talented. Yeah, I, I would agree. I know our alums coach does a great job recruiting really talented ball players to Lehigh. So um, yeah, I'd agree with that. I think like the innate human reaction, at least for most people, and maybe for myself, when I first read the quote was almost a little bit of like a slight, like to say like, oh, she's not talented or she's not the most talented. Like, hey, coach, did you just listen to all the accolades I read at the start of this podcast? Like she's got every record in Lehigh and Patriot League history. You know, how could she not be the most talented? But the, the more and more I've grown, the more and more I realize that like that's a compliment. When I read that back again, I was like, my brain was triggered and 
taught that talent is something that's really, really important. But for me, I've learned now that for someone to say that you've achieved at such a high level, but you didn't have the most talent is a compliment in my opinion. Yeah. I'm, it at least makes you feel like you maximize what you were given, mm-hmm. you know, like there's always going to be like some sort of limitation or, or whatever, like everyone's baseline talent is going to be different, but there's a lot of that that we put outside of our control. And the reality is with a growth mindset and like, you, there's a lot you can get better at and some things that you can get better at that you don't even realize. So. Hmm. He was just a born leader. How do you react to that? Disagree. Why? Um, I think I have a, I have an, uh, an outgoing, sometimes confrontational personality. Um, I think I like a lot of different kinds of people. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I really enjoyed every one of my teammates and we weren't all the same by any means. Um, so, uh, I think I have those type of abilities, but like on the leadership front, oh my gosh, I feel like I had so much to learn and like never felt like I was doing good. I remember being a captain and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I have no idea how to be a captain. Um, but isn't that interesting though? Is don't, don't you think that that's interesting now that you were sitting there being like, I'm a captain. Like, I don't know what to do, but now all of a sudden you're perceived at the end of your career there and you know, years down the line, you were just a born leader. Like how, how does that line up? I don't, I don't know. It's hard. Like this is, this is like so stupid, but like even on the noon hoops court, (laughs) like I want us to win. And I'm like, come on, like, we got to get a stop here. You know, like at that part, I, it, I'm not sure that's leadership. I think that's just the thoughts that come to, into my head, come out of my mouth. <laughs> I think there are a lot of people that have those same thoughts that they maybe don't, you know, like they don't share. I'm, I'm just, uh, I've gotten better at filtering over my, you know, life, but, uh, sometimes that stuff just comes out. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make a parallel comparison right now that I might get fried upon for doing this. But in the beginning of quarantine, we were so blessed with the documentary, The Last Dance. Yeah. I know you watched it because Brendan, your husband is a, maybe the biggest uh, Michael Jordan fan, even bigger than myself, which I didn't think was possible. Um, I'm not saying that you were Michael Jordan and people hated you, but your will to win was maybe potentially your leadership and knowing that like, I'm not going to let anyone pull me away from winning. Do you think that that was a sort of compare a Paris comparison for like your leadership that that's what maybe you did really well. And you, like you just said, you didn't, you, you verbalized what you were thinking in your head and that was what you were thinking. Yeah. Um, well, I, I feel like I did. And again, this is, this has nothing to do with, um, comparing myself to Michael Jordan, but there were things that came up in that documentary that definitely resonated with me, like Mm -hmm. that I connected with very personally. Um, I think, uh, I was not win at all costs. Mm-hmm. I was the furthest from that. Like we were not going to do it in any way, but the right way. Like, you know what I mean? Like, um, 
uh, opponents, you know, however the rivalries go, like there's always respect for opponents. There's always respect for officials. Did I give a side eye to an umpire who didn't give me the outside corner? Absolutely. But um, it was not at all costs. Um, there was like, I, I think the level of in, the level of integrity was really important to me. And that was, um, that would never have gotten in the way if it was integrity or winning, like it had to be both or I wasn't going to be on board. Mm -hmm. She took people that knew they wanted to do something and through her force and personality was able to get people to do uncomfortable things that made them better as softball players and as people. Now I've read this quote twice. I'm looking at you on Zoom and both times you have visibly reacted to the word force when I say it. <laughs> yeah. Talk about that quote. Uh, gosh, I'm thinking about my daughter who everyone is describing as a force of nature and I just were in for it. Like it's so bad. And Brendan looks at me like once a day and is like, dude, you created this monster. So I'm like, he's, he's right. Um, yeah, I would say I'm pretty passionate. Um, and, um, I can be persuasive, I think at times. And if you're like interested in winning and, you know, doing something special, then we're probably going to get along. Um, the uncomfortable things is interesting to me. I never felt like that in the moment, but, um, I hope that, I don't know. You can help people push through that stuff to get to a better version of themselves. That's why we coach. I think for me, this sentence was one of the more jarring ones for me to read because when I read that, I was like, well, that's why she's coaching now because so much of that is what a lot of our conversations in your office have been about is like, how can I get my players to do uncomfortable things to get them to be the best that they can possibly be? Because that's as a coach, as a leader of young women and men, regardless of whether you're a CEO or a head softball coach, like that's what you're always trying to do as a, as a leader of people. So how, how did that transition from your playing career into your coaching career and like, how has that been a, a motivating factor in your life to get people to do uncomfortable things to find a common goal? I think when you initially hear doing uncomfortable things, you think of like a tough workout or a drill you've never done before or a new, uh, like, you know, a new brand of hitting or a new brand of pitching or something like that. And it, I think that is, that's where my mind naturally starts, but the reality is getting people to do uncomfortable things sometimes means having a conversation with a senior that they are actually the leader that we need. And I know you describe yourself as a leader by example. We need you to be a leader in all areas. And that includes you using your voice. And that might be uncomfortable for you, but that's what's best for the team. We need you. Um, that might be... Uh, I know you've started on every team you've ever played for and you've never set out in your life, but right now your role is this and it's really important. And this is what the team needs you to do. And it's going to be really hard, but if we all do our roles well, we're going to win a championship. 
Like it's, it's thing, little things like that, that are, it's not always like the skill building part. It's so much more of what are the components to a team that achieves, you know, beyond the individual parts uh, or a staff for that matter too. Um, I think sometimes I have to do that on myself, like convince myself that, (laughs) you know, you got to give yourself a stern look in the mirror some mornings and be like, I need you to cook dinner tonight because, uh, it's COVID and we've eaten out seven days in a row. Like (laughs) this is what you need to do for the family. And, uh, I'm going to need you to step up and do it. Sometimes it's like the self pep talk. And those, and those conversations are the most difficult ones to have. Like people don't like having direct conversations. Um, and I can't believe I'm about to reference last dance again, but I'm going to do it. Um, a lot of people in that documentary were saying like, Oh, you know, Michael Jordan's going to get painted in like a little bit of a darker light. People are going to see like how ruthless he was and how much he competed and how much maybe his teammates didn't love him in that moment. But the beauty of the last dance is that at the end of that documentary, all of those players were kind of saying like, yeah, did I hate him at times? Yes. Did I go home and you know, God, why won't he let up on me? Yes. But at the end of the day, for people that were lucky enough, they won six championships with him and the memories that they've had from those moments, they don't regret them. And they respect Michael Jordan for pushing them as hard as they possibly could go to get the most out of them. And that's what we said in the beginning of this segment is like, yeah, I might not have been the most talented, but like I was most competitive and I, there was something beautiful about emptying the tank or squeezing the lemon dry as much as you can say that. Um, so that was just, that's interesting for me to hear that perspective of like those conversations are really important to have the role conversations. And as a coach, like you have to have them to get everyone on the same page. And at the end of the day, if we can win a championship and we can have this huge ride together um, and grow as people and players, like that's kind of what we're chasing as coaches. Yeah. I think it goes back to what you were talking about with the definitions too that like your personal expectations of what your career is going to look like and career applies to student athlete, you know, competing at the division one level or your career as a coach. Like sometimes it doesn't look the way that you thought it's like that. Um, it's like that photo where success and you assume it looks like this and it's like upward trajectory arrow <laughs> and mm-hmm. what success actually looks like. And it looks like a ball of yarn. <laughs> it's yep. like, all tangled and all over the place. But I do think you need someone to talk you through that and convince you that it's still worthy. Like, even though this didn't look like what you thought it was going to look like, it's still worth it. And you're still living the dream. Like you're still doing what you set out to do. Um, But the the pictures that we paint in our head, sometimes like that can it can hold us back from like really buying into something if it's not exactly the way we thought it was going to be. When you said that, it just triggered something. I was listening to a podcast the other day that talked about like teaching young people to realize and think about and be intentional about what they're putting out into the world in terms of whether it's social media, Twitter, whether it's a in-person interview, whether it's the first time that you meet somebody, how are you being perceived or how do you want to be perceived? And if your vision of how you want to be perceived is not aligned with the actions that you're putting out into the world, 
how do you align your values better? So my question to you would be like, what defines you as a person and how do you guide that into your, how do you let that guide your coaching? Gosh, I think it's like, I don't have like a personal document, right? Like there's no word doc that I could type up that is going to encapsulate who I am. I hope that, I think if there was, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be the best version of myself because things evolve and things change. But I think the things that have stayed with me that might apply are I'm really strong willed, but everything has to be done like with integrity uh, or I'm not going to be on, on board. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think like, you know, my staff, we always joke, like if your moral compass isn't pointing North, (laughs) it's going to be hard to have tough conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but, um, it's hard to wrap somebody up into what defines you. No, strong-willed and integrity is what defines you and how, like my question would be, how do you run your program and how does that lead your decision-making daily? You know, you're as a, as a human being, you are making unconscious decisions relentlessly throughout your day. So what defines you, you answered the question perfectly is you're strong-willed. So you believe in what you believe in. Um, doesn't mean that you're, you know, a fixed mindset and you're not willing to learn and adapt and, and adjust. Cause you mentioned that you don't have a document for, you know, said definitions of Lisa Van Akron, but integrity is at the forefront of your decision-making and that's evident in your program. And I'm sure that your players feel that from you and hopefully parents and recruiting and recruits feel that from you. So that you totally answered the question. Yeah, I hope. I mean, the the difference, I think, when you are playing in a program versus coaching in a program is that it's really not about you. And the strong-willed part has to be appropriately applied. And if it's not, you're not making it about the people who it's actually about, which is your athletes. Mm-hmm. Um And I've definitely, I'm sure made a lot of mistakes, you know, in that area, just because I think that part can be really, really challenging when you're not afraid to be outspoken, but there are many, many times where people have to run their own race and that may require you to step back and to shut up and to let things happen, let people learn, you know, for themselves. What character trait do you think has been the most pivotal for your success? What would you lean on and be like, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be able to be as successful as I feel like, you know, I am right now. And you are successful, even though you don't want to like hear that you are. Um, probably reflection. Mm-hmm. Wow again, my staff, like they, we joke that there are times after our season that we go into like our programs reflection, like we reflect back on the year and and we try to learn from, all right, what went well here, what things we need to adapt and, and change, you know, for upcoming years to be a better version of ourselves. And, but me as a person, it, and we call it 
season of reflection. <laughs> That's right. I, I bet you didn't know you were going to get a, a song on here, but wow. the season of reflection is a constant, I think, state of mind for me. And sometimes that can be a really good thing. Like over time, I think it helps. Um, it helps me grow and adapt. And, and sometimes it can be debilitating because it, it can feel like second guessing every move, second guessing every, you know, conversation or every decision that you've made. Um, but ultimately I think that's, that's what's necessary, at least some degree of reflection. I think that's why I like these conversations so much because this would be the way I would like to reflect reflecting Mm -hmm. with someone else who's willing to like go there and listen helps me get to a better, a better place internally. I just want to let you know that in my notes, it says it has that question. What character trait do you think has been the most pivotal for your success? And I have hyphen. She's going to say reflection, be prepared to respond to that. Because that's all you do. And that's all these conversations are. And that's, I've, you know, we've, I've had the inside track to see how you operate with your staff and you tell me about the meetings that you're preparing to have. And, you know, you might ask me like, what's a question I should ask to my staff? What do you think? You know, we have a unique position. You're a head coach and I'm an assistant. So like you're constantly asking me how I'm perceiving what a head coach might say to you. So you're always reflecting and that's the key to growth is like, cause if you just continue, Tim Sweeney said on episode one, like you're going to have an action and then you're going to have to analyze it and then you're going to reflect on it and then you're going to have another action. And that's, that's the growth is just, it's a continuous wheel of like, okay, action, uh, analyze, reflect action again. And that's kind of what it's been. So I knew you were going to say that. I knew it. Point Monge. <laughs> no, there's no winner here. The only people winning are the people that listen to this whole episode. That Those are the only winners here. Um, well, that's all I really got for you. I kept you longer than I thought we were going to go for, but that's kind of how this thing goes, you know? No You're kitchen. You're going to have to edit that way down. There was a lot of, com- there was a lot there. This is the- pretty typical. We schedule something for 20 minutes and an hour and a half later, we look at each other and go, uh, I think it's time. <laughs> time for me to go do work, right? Yeah, that's usually what I say. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for doing this. This has been awesome. Um, we haven't had one of these conversations in a while, so it was good to schedule it for, uh, for a podcast and, and get to talk talk business and, and talk about the things that we love and the things that we know. And, you know, we haven't been able to do a lot of that lately with COVID and the quarantine and not having, you know, people on campus. So it's been, it's been great to catch up. And I really think wow. the people are going to enjoy uh, hearing us talk to each other. <laughs> and, and if they don't, we can't ever do this again. <laughs> Publicly or at all? Uh, yeah, right. Maybe, maybe neither. No, I, I appreciate it. It was awesome. I think the, the great part is, when you ask a question, you're not asking just to ask it. Like there's always some intention behind it and some thoughtfulness. And um, it's really cool to see you using that for a podcast. Love it. The The last thing I'll add is that I we had a conversation earlier with Jesse March, who is a, a Princeton alum, who's a coach for soccer team Red Bulls in Salzburg, um, in Austria, and he said that the he used to he was a soccer alum here, then he was an assistant under Coach Barlow, who's currently here now, and he said that one of the best things that was working in college athletics and Princeton in general was like 
it was fascinating to see how the fencing team trained and how the rowing team trained and all of that. And it's been like the highlight of working at Princeton for me is having conversations like this with you. Like this, sure, this was set up for a podcast for us to put out in the public and, you know, have it on Twitter and have people click like to it, all that stuff. Great. But this is, this is the benefit of working in college athletics is having relationships like this with you, with your, you know, with other coaches in the department and learning from each other and lifting each other up through that because sure you throw an underhand ball to the plate someone swings at it and they hit it or they don't hit it we shoot a basketball it goes in it doesn't go in but the way that we interact with people and our players and our coaches like that's all similar and we've i've learned so much from you you've learned so much from me and hopefully the people listening can learn a lot from the both of us on this one because it was a lot of fun to do so thanks for that yeah absolutely awesome to talk to you much All right, Lisa, we'll see you soon.